Welcome to the Gorilla Pastor Podcast. I'm Josiah. And today's episode is a roundtable discussion, all in response to our previous episode, where my co-host Ryan Fasani interviews his longtime friend, Pastor Eric Paul. So if you haven't done it already, be sure to listen to that episode. For those that need it, a brief reminder is this. Pastor Eric Paul's guerrilla ministry is rooted in the work of reconciliation, of navigating conflict, of helping maintain healthy relationships. And the lion's share of our conversation with him focused on that, but also on a gospel that he grew up understanding that was rooted in violence. This, of course, is what broke for him and what he had to reconcile in his mind as he pursued ministry as a vocation. Which is why our previous episode is titled, Gospel as Reconciliation. So join us in today's episode as we respond to Pastor Eric's story, wrestling with how in the world the gospel could be used to promote violence, and how we so often miss the mark when we try to embody it in our daily lives. Here's Brian to get it started. So I think about Eric's whole episode made me just think a lot. I have not, I think what I, I realized, but out of all the ways that I feel like I have thought through, processed gospel, the church, um, my own calling, who God is and isn't, um, I don't know that I've processed the idea of gospel through um through violence and what it looks like and i see some of the ways um but it just opened up a place for me that i realized maybe even in my own anger issues um <laughs> uh, that it's it's probably a lens i should i should uh process the idea of gospel through um, and so it made me just want to chew on a lot more and ask a ton of questions. And so I enter into this and reading it, just asking a lot of questions and thinking um, about trying to process really the violence uh, that I think I've thought through the gospel of, and even even probably still hold it in uh, in some level. Yeah. Did you have a, a similar experience upbringing to Eric? Because that's what I kept kind of coming back to was, wow, I was shaped and framed, you know, I had the same frame of reference going into stuff like 9-11 and all that stuff that he did. Yeah. And I was, I would say I was just, uh, let's see, I probably was about um, eight to 10 years older than, than him. And so I, I was just married when 9-11 happened. And so just hearing the, and Talk about identifying events in someone's lives and a whole generation's life. Uh, whether, whether it be talking through gospel and faith and all that stuff or not, um, to be a senior in high school and, or a high school student when all that happens is, uh, is pretty formidable. Um, so it was, it was fun, not fun, but it was interesting reliving those events and where I was and all those stuff. And the feelings I had, I think I had been through seminary at the point. I hadn't, again, been processing violence and nationalism and all those kind of things uh, as 
and, and, and allowing the gospel to filter through the imagery. Um, but I played war as a kid. Um, but I also was at the time in 9-11 that I was like, oh, I just felt this place of, of tension, of needing to uh, stay in a balanced place uh, where I didn't run towards revenge, you know? Um, always knowing that in every war there's a family, right, <laughs> on both sides that are sitting there and they're crying and they're fearful for their uh, siblings and stuff and kids who are at war. And when a bomb goes off, it affects someone that is innocent almost every single time. So I was aware of all those things, so just knowing that there had to be a place um, of sitting in, in, in balance, if you will, and sitting, maybe that's not the right word, but not, not running to where my feelings of revenge and uh, wanted to go. Well, since I'm significantly younger than you, and uh, I was still an impressionable teenager. No, I'm just trying to give you grief. Sorry. We uh, we were at our first. Me and my wife were married, and at our first ministry spot. When I in Fasani, correct me if I'm wrong. He talked about SEAL Team Six and uh, killing Osama bin Laden was ten years later, right? That was part of his conversation. Yep, two, 2011, I believe. Okay, that's so that checks out because my first ministry assignment and. Uh, I was on staff with a pastor. It was a big church, one of the biggest churches in the area. And I was on staff with a pastor that celebrated that with a Facebook status that said, may you burn to a crisp in hell for all eternity or something like that. That was celebratory something or, an, or another. And the reason I bring it up is not to throw shade, but because I had a teenager. I was a youth pastor. I had a teenager come up to me and say, I don't, that, that doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel right. Like, are we supposed to celebrate that? And, you know, as I'm also processing, I'm like, you know what? I don't know that we are supposed to celebrate that. But to, just to feel that tension of a teen being like, hey, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's good. Should we celebrate something like that? Is that what we should be stoked about? So I, I bring that up to the teenager, boldly as a 15-year-old can be, messaged the pastor and said, hey, man, I don't know if that's the best thing to put on Facebook. And I was pretty impressed. He, he pulled it off and apologized for it. But to have this like kid, you know, who also is in this evangelical tradition that we could go through um, and talk about how there's like this, I don't know what, you, I mean, whether it's manifest destiny or some of the, some of the newer things that are happening in the last 50 years, um, dominionism and, this thing called Seven Mountain Mandate, there's always this undercurrent of like dominating culture and controlling all of the things that are happening and seeking power and influence that almost has to involve, you know, something that would be considered violence. So I was, I was sitting listening to Eric's story unfold and it felt very similar to some of the things I've struggled with as well, you know, growing up with these assumptions about how the world works, how Christianity works as a five-year-old saying, I'm in the Lord's army, you know, all the, all the songs we sing as, as kiddos in the Sunday school classes we've had. But yeah, that was immediately what came to my mind. Uh, this is kind of pre-baked in this celebration of violence was, was accepted until a 15 year old kid said, nah, I don't think that's good. Is that really what the gospel's about? And it reverberated. Like it reverberated through this large church and affected a pastor, an influential pastor. And I thought that was, I thought it was worth sharing. 
I, I will say that I, when he, when he went after and started expressing his thoughts when uh, Osama bin Laden was killed, that I remember we were in Seattle at that time. And I remember hurting, like going, ah, like it was painful, not because some of Bin Laden, to be honest, uh, but it just it further accentuates the uh, the violence cycle. Um, because anyone who's happy about that revenge just just perpetuates it, cool. um, and. There's and it's clueless to see like there's never there's never the end of revenge in that in that cycle, uh, and then just the idea that you know there were kids and wives sitting around that house and <laughs> that are you know um, at least kids that are very innocent to whatever's going on. This was their norm. Uh, they were brought into the a, a chaos, um, but it was their norm. Um, and we're probably normal kids. Uh, imagine SEAL Team 6 helicopters uh, coming down into your compound at night. I mean, it's just, it would be, it'd be another level. Per permanently alter the trajectory of a kid's life overnight. I mean, you knew all this stuff, Fasani, right? This is, was the, any of this really news to you? I mean, you're close friends with him. Uh, as long as I've known Eric, he's uh, been deeply convicted about the marriage between American evangelicalism specifically, but in general, kind of just Protestant Christianity and um, violent paradigms, right? So violent language in the political sphere, violent metaphors for God. I mean, just as, as many ways as we can connect violence to um, how we process and understand the world and the, all the stimuli around us, he has a particular sensitivity for. And so just to be transparent, like Eric, along with a handful of, you know, uh, profound authors and thinkers that I had read at the time that I met Eric, um, probably by the way of his recommendation, brought this to light. Um, and so, you know, while I give him kind of credit for helping me grow a sensitivity towards the marriage of violence and American evangelicalism, um, I think the, his, uh, his increased ability to succinctly articulate it continues to intrigue me, right? Because to me, it takes books to be convinced of this marriage. And I found myself in that interview realizing, oh, you can make a really strong case for why this is unhealthy in 20 minutes or actually in five, five to 10 minutes. And he did it. And here's how it worked. And here's how this, so this was the part that was new for me. He did it by correlating it to this, like the own, his own inter, inner like turmoil right? Holding up these two memories that were so shaping and how cataclysmically like, like different they were one of grief about violence and one of a type of like tacit celebration of violence and how those were both justified by a theological tradition. They were just 10 years apart. And when he made it about his own life, I immediately realized, Oh, the, the way forward in, sh in revealing this to other um, people in the West 
specifically in North America, specifically in the United States, and even more like hyper specifically in evangelicalism is not going to be by like making some long-winded argument in 70,000 words. It's by pointing out in your own life how you've struggled with the tension of embracing violence instead of the kingdom of God. So it hit me in a totally new way. And this is one of my close friends, and he's he's the one that introduced me to the, to this conflict. And here it hit me in a totally new way. Um, and, the, you know, but to, to put a, even more of a polish on that, he said it. And I think, um, I don't think it was in the shorter version, in the short uh, interview, but in the longer version, if you want to access that, but I'll give you a sneak peek here. Uh, he points to his failure until recently at being able to communicate this conviction of his. I mean, he does this professionally. He like mediates conflict professionally. And he also like in the secular world, but also in the the religious world. Like, so he does this on a district of churches in Hawaii. And he said, I basically have failed up until the point I realized that it's not about like convincing people of this argument that I'm making. Like, how can you not believe in a gospel of peace? But instead be like beginning with an invitation into acknowledging people's own desires for peaceableness, wholeness, and health. So when he said he, when he said as a facilitator, when I begin with the question, raise your hand, if you desire a life of peace and healthy relationships, hundred percent of the time people raise their hand and all of a sudden you have grounds on which to introduce them to a gospel of peaceableness. As opposed to saying, raise your hand if you think Jesus was a pacifist. It's like you might get 5%, right? Like you're already like the cards are stacked against you. And that is profound when we realize something is, I mean, just to be truthful, as radical as imagining a gospel of peaceable nonviolence only has a chance to be heard when we connect it to the universal desire for health and wholeness. It's just like, that's just like, that's like, that's uh, like revelatory. I don't know if there's another word, right? Like it's revelatory. So I like, I like how um, Eric uh, is a practitioner of this like deep theological tradition, by the way, that's not some like hippy dippy, like newfangled idea, like <laughs> the entirety of the life of the Christian church. So for 2000 years, there's been a strong current um, of nonviolent understanding um, of the gospel and of the kingdom. Um, and here, you know, he's re- making it about how to, how to practice this well and how to share this well and how to help people into this new understanding well. So that was all new for me. So let me ask a question then as, and I, the question is coming from what I perceive as people's probably big hang up with the whole conversation that we've even reflected on Eric's conversation. Um, But let's just talk about the 10 year between uh, 9-11 and, and the death of Osama bin Laden as as event pinpoints or bookends um, in that story. What? How do you hold the tension? And we can talk about it biblically, but also theologically, um, as far as reflection of who God is. Uh, um, but how do you hold the tension of uh, 
of justice in that and peaceable gospel or peaceable kingdom. Like that's I think that's I think that's a question that that comes up. I mean, I have my own thoughts and ideas maybe on it, but I don't know that they're well formed. Uh, they're just kind of I, I think I've and that's part of what I say is I haven't really really done deep thought and study on it, but that's it seems to me that that may be a major one of the major questions like do do those things hold side by side in a peaceable kingdom is there justice so is this is this kind of built on i'm going to use my own upbringing as an example justice can only come about through force essentially right like there has to be justice doled out is that kind of what you're teasing out or no if i i, I think i'm understanding the term right but uh um it's a retrib- retributive um, justice, right? And how that plays out as a form of justice. Uh, but I know that's not the only form of justice, but, uh, but that's, I think, but I think that's the form of justice that most people hold to. Are, I mean, at least if you're an American. Which, um, is, which is why the Osama bin Laden death was celebrated. Is that what, is that what we're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. For me, you just have to kind of define some terms of what justice actually is, which is where it gets a little bit sticky potentially. Because once you have a retributive, right, like at the beginning of it, I don't know, it gets back to the eye for an eye thing that Jesus talked about in a sermon once upon a time. Yeah, you know, there, there's an idea of retributive justice, which is in like layman's term, making right and and doling out consequences where necessary to like you know i mean this is and, and lady justice who's objective and holds a scale will tell you you know and what you know and what amount and, and what severity um so but i just like it's it's not helpful to create a straw man about retributive retributive justice as the only version of that looks like seal team six you know like assassinating Osama bin Laden in front of his three, six year old children. Like, like that, that's just cheap. That's a cheap shot. It's not an accurate, it's just a cheap shot, right? There are other, there are other forms of retributive justice. Um, I think that are less horrifying. Now, the question though, for me is, is retributive justice a paradigm that works well in general? And is can you have healthy retributive justice within a profiteering context? So in a market economy where it's where retribution is actually commodified. And I would add to that, is there such thing as a healthy retributive concept of justice? Actually, I'd add two more things, two more questions. Is there such thing as a healthy concept of retributive justice when we have a longer kind of more overarching uh, history of colonial domination, rate you know racist racist abuse and manipulation, um, you know what I mean, and a type of like imperial sense of power and ownership, manifest destiny, right? Like once you overlay it with the way we conceive ourselves as enacting power in the world, you realize, oh, there's no such thing as an independent concept of retributive justice in in an environment of health and stability, 
it's always retributive justice and and profiteering and you know uh, systemic racism and a long history of abuse and overreach of power so you know so, so while i don't want to make a straw man i also want to be also we also need to reckon with what retributive justice has looked like and on a large scale and let me tell you it is heinous right the fourth thing i wanted to add was simply this right like what happens when retributive justice intersects with how we understand the god who is just Right. So you take it from like a geopolitical stage or from a national stage or even a state statewide kind of understanding of retributive justice or an individual understanding of contributive justice. I mean, I, people are after justice and next door, like <laughs> like in my neighborhood. You know what I mean? Um, but what happens when you interlock that with concepts of justice and God? What happens when it, when retributive justice becomes the lens by which you read scripture? Due to unforeseen complications, we had to abruptly end our conversation at this point, but we picked it up on another day, inadvertently answering Fasani's question about what it looks like to read the scriptures through a lens of retributive justice. Growing up, I had a maybe maybe unique, but maybe a shared experience others have experienced as well in evangelical circles. Um, a very familiar relationship with firearms. I mean, there's story after story I could tell, and uh, they didn't always overtly connect to evangelical beliefs, but they were always present in evangelical gatherings. There was a there was this group of folks that would go camping together that all went to the same church, and uh, guns were always a part of the mix. And I can remember I was maybe four or five years old when I shot my first gun. And uh, my father put it in my hand, and I wasn't quite strong enough to hold it. And he did it, I I think he did it without my mother knowing. Uh, I fired it, it recoiled and flipped up and hit me in the head. And I said, you know what, I don't want to have anything to do with guns anymore, Pops. But I was trying to be, you know, the big strong man with all the other big strong men. And having a gun was some sort of masculine badge of honor. I, I can clearly remember... Continuing to grow up, and you know, I would go hunting. I would, I would just go shooting. I would have guns, but there was—I don't know if this was actually the law at the time. So hopefully, not going to get anyone in trouble. But the first time I open carried, uh, where I grew up, which was in Arizona, some might call that West Coast's Florida, which is fine with me. Um, I was 16, and it was on one of these camping trips, and I was wearing it to the grocery store because I thought deep down that. A good Christian man needs to be ready at all times to protect, to violently oppose some sort of evil, even in the grocery store, right? I got to be ready. I got to be this protector and uh, make sure everyone knows I'm, I'm ready to rock. So there was always some sort of undercurrent. Sometimes it was very over, depending on who you talk to, but being very quick to violently oppose evil was was almost like the foundation for what a Christian man should be ready to do, for what evangelicals should be ready to do. And I can tell you growing up, every church I went to, especially when I spent most of my time in, without exception, there were dozens, dozens of guns in the sanctuary on a Sunday morning. Or anytime people gathered, 
There were just guns everywhere. Not always in sight, but they're ready to go. So I, I don't want to get lost in the weeds of like some Second Amendment debate, but, you know, talking about violence and gun was a, a gun can be a way to be violent. But generally speaking, that evangelical undercurrent, I don't know how much of this was intentional or how much of it was just based on being a silly teenage boy. Being ready for violence was something that was a, a good Christian man's responsibility. Not y'all's. <laughs> that was not your upbringing. <laughs> I, you know, I grew up in a suburban context in a relatively conservative county in California. But there was almost an uprightness that was resistance to that was resistant to the uh, kind of open carry culture that I encountered when I moved to other regions of the United States. Um, but the um, the ideological like support for the idea, not the constitutional support for the actual carrying of guns, but the ideological support that justifies the ownership of mass weaponry and the just and justifies acts of violence under generally the guise of self-defense was exactly the same where I grew up as it was in environments where there was open carry. Right. So, and that's only something I understood kind of retrospectively thinking back all the same language and all the same theological underpinning supported an ideology that was thoroughly supportive of acts of violence um, and they were they were justified. Um, and so I didn't see like there wasn't a, if you will, a gun culture growing up for me. And and side note, I did grow up kind of in evangelical America. Um, but I uh, but I honestly think that where I grew up, like even like it's almost redundant to say suburban middle class America and evangelical like like it all is just sort of part of the milieu. So there weren't guns out in the open but it was all the same rhetoric, right? And so when I moved to an area of the country where there was a lot of firearms, it was like, shockingly so, it was comfortable for me. And it took me back realizing, oh my gosh, like nobody put guns on the table during, you know, during Thanksgiving or something like that, or had them hanging off their hip while we were watching like a Sunday football game, but all the same rationale was there. And then when, when it started to unravel for me theologically, I realized, I realized that um, deep in my, my psyche were, were all the arguments for why violence was okay, particularly American violence was okay. And, and that's interesting, right? Because it's not as explicit, Josiah, as your story, but all the same ideological fodder right, that supports such an idea and experience is there. Yeah, I I think, I mean, my, I'm trying to figure out in my mind. Again, I have I have not spent a lot of time processing, um, the violence in the gospel. Um, I I think, and and if I try and and understand why, it's a little bit naivety, but it's I think, uh, growing up so. I was born in Washington. We left when I was two to go to Africa. So where my dad was a medical missionary. So watching my dad work in hospital 
with people from, I mean, he did everything. Uh, and as a family practice doctor, he did everything in from open heart surgeries, brain surgery, delivering babies to uh, many things that were untrained. And then, so our, our role there, my dad as a doctor, but then also as missionaries was very hospitable. I can remember being very proud um, of, of America and being American or um, because I thought that the posture of America was the same posture my parents held towards the world as far as hospitable and caring and reaching needs. Um, I mean, what I knew when as I grew up a little bit was all these churches from America sent us care boxes and sent us boxes of bandages of cut up sheets rolled up that might, that was used in the hospital. Uh, and so that was that I, I understood it as caring. Um, um, so then coming back to the States, uh, when I was 12 and as a time when faith starts to become my own, it was always cultural. It wasn't, it was like, I don't understand this culture of guns and 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 the history of American violence uh, on the world and stuff like that. I that was it was always more cultural than it was through. I never saw it through the lens of American the American church. Um, if anything, I saw the American church participating in it, but that was just a part of the culture bleeding in. Um, more than it was the gospel being violent, um, if you will. Um, now, as an adult, I understand, have read more and have opened my eyes a little bit to uh, Americans, America's foreign policies <laughs> and uh, a little bit of the scavenger mentality that we have uh, on the world as far as um, reaping its benefits for ourselves. Um, I, I do the, the, and, and then seeing more and more theologically how it's played in and it's, uh, how it's, it's become one. Uh, that's, I think that it just took a long time, but it was, it was always hard for me to understand, like whenever, whether it was a Christian or whether it was an American, I didn't know. I mean, there was no difference. And I was like, what are they doing? I don't understand it. It was always forward to me. So mm-hmm. I think that's always why, uh, hearing Eric, I, I do hear I hear all his feelings, and I felt those feelings. Uh, I was married when Osama bin Laden, uh, when 9-11 happened, and when he was when Osama bin Laden was uh, killed, and I can remember having all these different feelings. The feelings of, yeah, the feelings of, oh, man, this isn't the answer that this doesn't actually solve anything, uh, to... Oh man, his kids were in the house. You know, Osama bin Laden's kids were in the house. There was real people there. You know, and um, that are not tied up in this mess, um, at least in an intentional manner. So, um, but it's it's very convoluted for me. I would say. Hmm. I have a I have a question about dates. When you left Africa, what year was it? Eighty five. So you left before, because he referenced the book, Mirror to the Church, which kind of chronicles what led to uh, the genocide in Rwanda. And I think that was happening in the early 90s. So it would have been after you left. 
Yeah. Um, but much like, you know, much like the story I shared, I, I want to make a clarifying point. I don't think the gospel is violent. I think misunderstanding the gospel can lead to violence, right? So, like, that's just something that I feel like needs to be said. Once, once Christianity becomes cultural Christianity, um, then it can have violent tendencies, primarily when it's an us versus them uh, framework that you're operating within, who is for me, who's against me, right? And that's, that's exactly, a, that's a really oversimplification of what happened in the genocide in Rwanda. Um, but some of that was, spoiler alert, made worse by the church, right? By colonializing forces that are trying to create missionary engagements with local inhabitants. But the same thing can be said for, you know, a continuation of that in American evangelicalism is rooted in some sort of cultural Christianity, cultural understanding of the gospel, which is culture war. It's always framed within this us versus them. And the question that's always kind of being wrestled with, just like what you're saying with the Osama bin Laden or Twin Towers, is like, what is okay to do to them? Mm. Sometimes in the name of Jesus, right? And again, I'm not saying that's actually what's happening. I'm not saying people are doing things because Jesus wants them to do it. But at some point, folks think they're doing that, and they have their own version of like a, like a full-on jihad, right? Like mm-hmm. a crusade of sorts. So. Yeah, you're making a critical shift there that I think is important. And let me just cl- make sure I'm on the same page as you, Josiah. So you're saying the, the gospel is inherently nonviolent. Mm-hmm. When it's practice, we have plenty of examples of how um, if it's practiced in an ideology of division and othering, it inherently becomes violent. Right, like yes. when it when it when it's embodied in an in a in an unhealthy othering, then it becomes a tool of violence. Right, yes. so that's an that's an interesting, it's it's interesting, right? Because it begs the question: What part of the gospel is exists when it's not embodied? Or the one that I the question that I find more even more interesting is: How then do we embody a gospel, or how do we practice gospel that is nonviolent and peaceable? Side note. Right. And, and this is a plug, you know, for uh, an, an event coming up in, in Portland and in Seattle. A good friend of some of ours is is uh, welcoming Brian McLaren and others to have what what is p- turning out to be, I think, a really engaging kind of dialogical style of one day conference where uh, McLaren's going to help us think through his his latest book. You can look it up. Um, do we what is what's the title? How do, uh, should we? Is Christianity worth saving? Is is Christianity worth worth saving? And the reason I bring that up is a there's a couple events coming up and it should be really lively. But but more importantly, he points out in that he does in that book what Katangole does in Mirror to the Church and what basically any five minutes on Wikipedia can do um, for the mid 20th century wars that decimated half the half of Europe, and that is. We have countless examples of how the most Christian nations are actually the ones killing the most people. The absolutely right. most violent. Right. Like, like I don't I don't even want to like just breeze through that and go on to another topic. Like we must, as people of faith that are practitioners of the gospel, reckon with the statistical fact that in history, the last hundred years. The, the statistically, the per capita most confessing Christian countries 
have actually inflicted the most violence. And I'm, of course, talking about Rwanda in the 90s. I'm talking about the United States in several decades throughout the last century. But I'm also talking about uh, mid-20th century Germany, right? Mm-hmm. The, like we're These are a, almost a preposterous overmajority of, of Christians that would be citizens of these countries. And they are inflicting some of the most atrocious violent acts, right? The gospel itself is necessarily embodied, which means it's got flesh on it, which is part of the incarnational truth that we believe about it. But it also means that it can become whatever that flesh decides to do with it, Mm -hmm. right? If that means literally bearing arms at an ungodly manner, like stashing munitions so that we can insist on the apocalypse coming, that is a form of gospel, right? Like if it means like nonviolently and peaceably working towards reconciliation, small community development oriented kind of like grassroots groups in neighborhoods, that also is a type of embodiment of, of gospel, right? So in, in some ways, like from the outset, we need to make some hard decisions. How do we reckon with the past, right? That doesn't necessarily make Christian nations healthy, stable, and nonviolent. And what do we do on a daily basis in our neighborhoods that insists that our embodiment of the gospel is nonviolent and peaceable? Which I think would be, you wouldn't think you'd have to say this, but I feel like I should, which would insist on the inherent nonviolence of the gospel, right? Like, There's there's just this, uh, there's just, moment in the book that keeps coming back to my mind mirror to the church i don't know if it's it's pretty brutal um leading up to it you say the most confessing i mean to the point where they're sending pastors priests to rwanda to figure out how to emulate what is happening to the rwandan church because it was growing and had so many people attending and it was statistically such a like 80 85 percent right professing christian population growing rapidly highly successful sunday morning numbers etc 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 not not a few years later and there are story after story being reported of priests pastors of churches that have um people hiding in them from from the the folks carrying weapons where the priest pastor says can you please be gentle to the building can you please not use, you know, your assault rifles in there? Please just use your machetes, right? Like that's that is the that is the the shift that takes place with the, and these are these are spiritual leaders, these are priests and pastors that that this this book documents asking asking the folks that are about to do bodily harm to others to just be careful of the walls of the church, don't hurt the stained glass, don't hurt the paintings, which just is brutal. And again, like you're saying, we need to reckon with this. That's that's the thing that it still hurts my brain to think through. Like, how do we get to that point with with uh, starting from something Jesus talks about? You know, something like let's turn the other cheek. Actually, how do we get there with that? That's what uh, I don't know. That hurts my brain so much to try to reckon with. Yeah, but let me ask. It seems to me that what we're talking about really is a conflict of national of of christian nationalism i mean that's if the nationalism is tied to a world superpower mm-hmm. uh that in whether economic in their it's war machine and in influence in any way um is a superpower that's that's really what we're talking about yeah 
Christian nationalism. I, I think the con- I think the co-opting of religious sentiment for the purposes of a nationalistic agenda, even if it's not for in, in the context of a superpower, even if it's on a microcosmic local scale, right? Like it becomes problematic, right? Like anytime we, we marry theological conviction with political advancement, power building, and you know, it's problematic. It's, it'll inherently become, uh, it'll inevitably not inherently become uh, violent. Yeah. yeah. As as uh shown in Rwanda, not a superpower, but right. still it was a tribal, yeah. it was a it was a tribal line drawing. Uh, it was a, a, mm-hmm. a na- tribalism rather than nationalism, yeah. if you would. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So then the uh, begs the question, how how do you peacefully embody a gospel that that doesn't open the door for othering? us versus theming, you know, our neighbors, because that's really what it comes down to in the examples you shared, Ryan, and like currently what we're facing right now in this country is, is how polarized it is and how many others we have, right? And we could choose to go down our neighborhoods, we could go down, you know, where we live, where our church buildings are, wherever the case may be, and do a lot to draw lines in the sand, which is only just going to continue the fever pitched division that comes uh, from from this us versus them cultural war nonsense. Uh, but yeah, what's, what's a better alternative? <laughs> what do we do with that? Uh, well, Eric, Eric gives us a few uh, resources, um, a few practices, actually. I don't, I don't know if they directly answer your question. Like, what do we do with, you know, sort of our tendency to, embed our theology into a nationalistic kind of ideology or something like that. But he does say this, and I've been kind of stewing in this ever since, because I had never thought about it as an actual practice. And he does it narratively. He tells about his story, his emotional response in two separate encounters of uh, uh, geopolitical violence, right? 10 years apart, and contrasts them as a type of evolution of theological conviction. The first being 9-11 celebrating that we, mm. you know, we've got we've got to go, you know, get the terrorists and and supporting war on terror all the way to the killing of Osama bin Laden and him experiencing grief and sorrow on behalf of the fact that we must use violence to insist on our agenda or whatever. And so here's the implicit practice that I've been stewing on. It is a holy thing to take emotional inventory when we are confronted with violence. Mm-hmm. When we face violence as Christians, and, and ought we not at bare minimum take inventory of what's happening in our internal landscape? And if there's an and here, right? And if, or there's a condition here, if it's one of celebration, right? Then it's inconsistent with the nonviolent peaceableness of Jesus Christ. If it's one of sorrow, grief, and lament, then at some fundamental level, we empathize with the God that's willfully submitted to the violent act on the cross, right? Like, like one of us, one aligns us with Rome and one aligns us with the God of the, of, of, G, of Jesus Christ. And that's a, and 
that's not me like saying every time there's an act of violence, it's always like Jesus to do nothing. That's not what I'm saying. This is a practice of self-inventory. Are we celebrating? Are we pumping our internal fist? Are we saying hoorah, go get them? Then we, then we have, then we have to be honest about like what that means about who we're aligning with in general. And the other is, do we feel a heaviness, a sorrow, a lament when we see violence in the world? I don't care if it's ours or it's theirs or who it's against. I mean, just violent acts between two entities. What's our internal landscape say? And then of course, there's the neutrality. What does it mean to feel nothing? What does it mean to feel nothing, which is its own type of investigation. But I like that practice of taking self-internal inventory, right? The other one that Eric gave us, which I think is of some value here for guerrilla pastoring um, in general, is are we willing to actually do the studying, right? So Eric's entire kind of arc of spiritual growth was in response uh, or followed kind of a, a, a similar arc of willingness to study and explore these things. We've referenced Brian McLaren's book. We've referenced Mirror to a Church, Kat Angoli's book. Uh, Eric referenced Bonhoeffer's book, not, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, and the uh, oh, Mirror to the Church. But then what was the other one that he read at the same time? Oh, uh, The Politics of Jesus by John Howard Yoder, right? Like, so we're we're clearly making a suggestion here. Like reading is critical, right? Reading, studying this is critical, right? Um, and so th- those are two practices, right? That it, that sort of are self convicting, if you will. I'm I'm gonna get dangerously theological for a second. Um, there's a lot that I, a lot of this, especially Christian nationalism, gets really wrapped up in the Book of Revelation. I would say because it's always like conjectures about what's coming and who's doing what and what powers that play with this, that, the other. Um, but there's there's a thread in there that's throughout a lot of. I don't know, there are a lot of prophetic books that talk about this, but the idea of a Babylon that wants your allegiance, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's this thread that there is a nation state, there's an empire that's always going to want your allegiance over, you know, giving your allegiance fully to the kingdom of heaven or to God, Jesus, however you want to phrase that. Uh, and I think there's something to that that on a personal level helps subvert what would be a tendency or a temptation to give into like Christian nationalistic tendencies of, well, it's my morals and ethics that I'm going to help legitimize and legislate. And it's actually going to be good for everybody if I force it on them. Right. Um, at some level, you know, giving into uh, allegiance to an empire or to a state, it, it always puts you at odds with anyone you see and they have to pass muster. And it's like a guilty until proven innocent interaction, right? Like when I, mm-hmm. going back to the teenage me, right, with a gun, I was looking for a bad guy everywhere I went. And I was always, are you, are you we can square up? Like, what's up, right? Everywhere I went, it was always this, this, this moment to like, I'm going to be the protector. I'm the person. And you're almost looking for the other, right? You're hoping for an other. Um, a, a subversive, a subversive uh, tract that I have hopefully I'm still working on doing doing the inner work, right, Brian? I'm doing the inner work of I'm trying to remember that on some level I don't have to agree with everybody, but they do bear the image of God, right? On some level, there's something deeply profound and personal about I might not vote like them, I might not look like them, I might not agree with them on a whole bunch of philosophical theological points, but 
it's really hard to see them as as them, right? Us versus them, when we both have have uh, this incarnational gospel, tangible expression of like God. We are all image bearers of God, and that that just puts that's put puts the pause on some premeditated judgments that put you at odds with them. Because I think at at a default, and some of this is that that violent tendencies at a default, we want to just draw lines in the sand and say, are you on my team or not? But the moment you start to say, Oh wait, God, God cares about both of us. God created us. We're image bearers of God. Like, what does that say about how I'm treating this person? What does that say about what I believe about who God is? What does that say about what I believe the gospel actually says? And it, it, for me at least puts, puts the pause on some of those tendencies to, to be looking for others, I guess is how I would say it. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to look for the underlying thread in all this uh, because, um, and there, are, and I think I think about it. So I think McLaren talks about it as as you dive deep into spirituality um, that goes across uh, traditions um, and the world, then your language tends to become more elastic and more. You start to see uh, um, the synonymous uh, characteristics of each of, of every person. Um, so we start looking towards um, we start looking towards uh, the, the similarities, the the humane and all the humanness, uh, if you will. And and I think I think that's what we talk a lot about when we talk about neighboring. When we've talked about all this stuff, the benevolent orthodoxy. Um, it, that's, that's the line I think in our, in a lot, in a lot of what we talked about as guerrilla pastors and subversive ministry that, that seems to go through this. Obviously, I think, I even wonder if you talked about Arizona, if growing up in Arizona and the reality of the language of the border, uh, which automatically creates an other is always in your face. Um, Oh, absolutely! And always, yeah, always on the news. All that it just it creates a culture of other and protecting, as if, as if that uh, instead of welcoming, <laughs> um, yeah. So there's, I think, just so. And the only reason I bring that up is because I think just as much as growing up in Africa for me, uh, I think place we talk about context, but place is going to help. Is going to help identify some of these values or even some of these tendencies as far as uh, leaning into immediately looking for the other or drawing lines quickly or or trying to see us um, as one so yeah you know something that keeps coming to mind is the retort that i recall hearing anytime any suggestion of nonviolence is brought up um in my family gatherings or my church ministry positions. And that's always, uh, I don't need to recite them exactly, but behind them was always a type of fear of a soft Jesus, right? Like, so you're saying we should just keel over and, you know, like give everything away. Like, and then there's the kind of the, what about and the sensational, like what about isms and sensationalization? Like, but what about like, if someone comes into your house with a, with the on some automatic rifle, you're just going to let them shoot your family up. Right. Like that's as if like, that's the everyday 
you know, example of what it means to like encounter violence or something. Be like, oh, oh yeah, there's, you know, more likely chance that I'll get hit three times with lightning, <laughs> you know, it 10 years apart every instance than that happening once in my life. But but what what this reminds me of is um the difference between conflict and violence, right? And uh the the fear of a soft kind of passive Jesus um, is kind of like implicit implicitly is like a fear of, of conflict. Um, And, uh, or excuse me, is, is, is an insistence on the need of violence in fear of not being soft in presence of conflict. And I remember learning and here's where I was kind of freed from being tethered to that assumption. I remember learning that the, the, those that fear conflict the most insist on using violence the quickest, right? Con- violence actually ends conflict, right? Being able to peaceably engage in conflict is not at all what we're saying we should avoid when, when we insist on a nonviolent or peaceable gospel. As a matter of fact, it's embracing the presence of conflict and seeing conflict through to certain types of compromised resolution that's something altogether different than ending the conflict with a violent act does that make sense right like and and in some ways i it or i should say it's important to remember that in many ways nonviolence is the most conflict ridden or the most comfortable in environments of conflict right it's not has nothing to do with being soft has nothing to do with being passive, right? It has to do with embracing the promise that on the other end of conflict, right? There's a re- there's redemptive possibilities, and when you when you repackage it in that way, you realize, oh my goodness, like this matters in everyday encounters, not the sensational examples or the war example, right? This matters in everyday encounters. How I encounter, how I deal with conflict in my family. How I deal with conflict at my work. There are violent and nonviolent ways of dealing with that conflict. And all of them hinge on how much I believe in the promise of redemptive possibilities. Right. So for me, a nonviolent gospel is a gospel that promises the possibility of redemption, the possibility of alternatives if we see the conflict through. That's what I that's what I would insist on in pra, as pra, as a practitioner. See the conflict through. Hold the space for conflict and don't other your neighbor, right? Requ- it requires all kinds of skills that most of us don't have developed like the ability to actually dialogue and listen and so on and so forth. But it, what it's not is it's not passive. Right? Nonviolence is not passive. Right? Anyhow. The scripture calls us to be ambassadors of reconciliation. And that work of sitting in conflict, of seeking resolution, is far more difficult than othering in violence. But this is what a holistic and embodied gospel that is truly good news for all looks like. And we thank our fellow guerrilla pastor, Eric, for helping us understand this truth. Before we end this episode, there are a few things I would like to make mention of. The first is that there is a full-length and unedited version of my co-host Ryan Fasani's interview of Pastor Eric Paul. It is a premium episode, which means you would be supporting this podcast for a dollar a month to listen to it 
and each subsequent unedited premium episode that comes out this year. Currently, these are only available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Be sure to also check out our website, gorillapastors.com, for an exclusive post from our previous guest, Pastor Eric, answering the question, what is it that we missed in our interview that you would like to share with our listeners? The link is in the episode description. And as always, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so others might discover this podcast as well. I have been your host, Josiah, and this is the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.